0: Sometimes, I go into a podcast episode with a lot of notes, preparing to speak with an expert on a subject in which I have no expertise. Today's episode is not one of those episodes. Welcome to Mindful. My name is Eric Bollman. I'm the communications person at the Canadian Psychological Association. In addition to this podcast, that means that I send member communications and handle our social media, among other things. And every now and then I want to do something a little bit silly. So for today's episode, I know nothing about my guest except for what is in her Twitter bio. A big mindful welcome to the CPA's 6,000th Twitter follower.
1: My name is Alison Lamont. I am a master's student at the University of New Brunswick, St. John campus. Uh, I just started my master's in May of this year. Um, I'm very excited. It's a new program that UMB is doing where I can do my master's in a 12-month time span. So that's uh, super exciting. Um,
0: is that more, less, or as exciting, <clears throat> excuse me, as being the 6,000th 6, 6, follower <laughs> of the CPA on Twitter? which is a- That's
1: pretty exciting.
0: It is. It's a pretty big deal.
1: Yeah, that was such a uh, coincidence. I because um, because I presented as a student presenter this past week at the at the convention. And I was um, just happened to the other day think like, oh, I should follow uh, the CPA account on Twitter in case they post anything about my about my presentation. And then it just happened that I was the 6,000th follower. And I'm like, what a coincidence.
0: Well, as the person who runs the CPA's social media, I do not believe I posted anything about your presentation, but now is your chance to tell us all about it. What was your presentation about? Was it a poster?
1: Um, I did it as a slide deck um, just for ease of visibility. Um, but I did a presentation on my honors research. So looking at the mediating role of depression in the uh, relationships that food insecurity shows with uh, medical and mental health care use.
0: So tell me a little bit about that. What what kind of things are you looking at? So I know food insecurity is a big thing for you because the only thing I know about you is what's in your Twitter <laughs> body. That's in there. Uh, yeah. So, How how did you come to think about depression as a factor in food insecurity?
1: Right. Um, So when I started looking at the food insecurity literature for my honours, it became apparent pretty quickly that there's um, not only all these adverse physical health outcomes associated with food insecurity, but quite a lot of... um, negative mental health outcomes. And uh, the more papers I kind of skimmed, the more I realized like, okay, this one mentions depression and this one mentions depression. So it was kind of like this a uh, very common theme that was popping up within the literature. Um, so I was interested because there was a few studies I had seen that had looked at um, these food insecurity healthcare relationships, whether it be medical or mental health care, but no one had specifically uh, been controlling for um, these mental health problems as mediators. They had been including them as covariates, but not as as a mediating variable. And I was like, I wonder if that would be something of interest.
0: All right, you are going to have to explain what a mediating variable is.
1: (laughs) So um, a mediator would be um, a variable. So um, uh, a relationship between a predictor variable and an outcome variable, a mediating variable would uh, be accounting for that relationship. So say um, um, the odds of using a healthcare service for food insecure people is two times the amount of uh, a food secure person, let's just say in this uh, made up scenario. Well, perhaps part of that association is because of their or could be attributed perhaps to this greater um, incidence of depressive symptoms. Perhaps that's explaining why they're they're using these services more is because of this uh, depression. So it was just looking at is it all food insecurity? Is that what's driving this relationship? Or are there other things that are influencing this?
0: And so when people are food insecure, they have a higher mm-hmm. rate of depressive symptoms, it seems. Mm-hmm. Yeah is that would you know whether that's because the uncertainty of whether you're going to be able to eat day to day eats away at you or is it a more physical thing uh, where you're not getting proper nutrition and that affects your mind as well as your body or is it a bit of both
1: i think it's a bit of both i haven't seen any um truly causal studies it's more like finding associations between all these things no one has actually because you can't really um, experimentally manipulate someone's food security status and do kind of like a causal um, study where you manipulate um all these variables and control for all these things. But um, definitely, there's links where um, food insecure individuals experience poor uh, nutrition adequacy. And then this is thought to affect their health in X amount of ways. Um, and then there's also the evidence, of course, that you know when you struggle uh, to eat, there's all these other factors that because if you're food insecure you're not just food insecure it's an indicator of other material deprivation so you're worried about your food you're worried about your housing situation all the things like that so that kind of builds up and adds to these um these mental health symptoms over time so yeah it's it's both i think it's both
0: all right well i have i have a suggestion for a follow-up study then uh i have a perfect cohort for you okay I work with a charity here in Ottawa called Operation Come Home. We work with homeless youth. And every February we do something called the $24 challenge. And what we did was we took the amount of money that uh, a homeless youth might be able to get from Ontario Works and uh, you know all the other city programs, subsidized housing, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And we presumed that this youth has a 30 hour a week minimum wage job which we actually took one of the youth in our programs who had this exact situation and we discovered that at the end of every week they had $24 to spend on food. That was the food budget for the entire week. So a bunch of us lived for a week on $24 and we followed it on social media so that we could show people just how difficult it is to have to shop with $24 and you only get that once a week. And it's not like you can take $96 and spread it over a month and get a 10-pound bag of flour. You've got to do it week by week and how difficult that is. So we are voluntarily putting ourselves in food insecurity for one week. And you're welcome to study us next year when we do this.
1: Definitely. That's super interesting.
0: So what got you interested in food insecurity in the first place?
1: When I started my honors back in September, I actually had never even heard of food insecurity, didn't know what it was. Um, I was interested in, I knew I wanted to look at um, mental health care use, you know, what influences someone to access these services, what groups are more or less likely to use services, just studying that in order to understand how to create interventions to target these groups and i was talking to my uh, my supervisor uh, dr speed at uh, unb and he said i've seen some i've seen some work on food insecurity have you considered studying food insecurity and i was like i don't, sure and i looked into it um, that day and i was just ever since then i've just been like we need to do something about this. Like this is—it was crazy to me because there was all of this literature on. It seems to be so well laid out in the literature, um, especially in Canada. There's a research group in Toronto called Proof, and they have it all laid out on their website, like how to how to tackle food insecurity. Yet no one was seemed to be doing anything about it. And I was like, this is this is for me.
0: <laughs> Good. So down the line, then, what do you want to do about it?
1: I guess my hope is to bring awareness to it because every time I meet someone, I talk to someone about it, they're like, I didn't even know that was a, that was a thing. So I hope to just at least bring some, some attention to it. Um, Keep researching the, the, the food insecurity in Canada and um, hopefully find some, some information that can be taken and adapted to um, into policy, Um, take it to you know, the local MLA and hopefully higher and higher up. And um, I I know uh, PEI just announced a few weeks ago, or maybe it was a few months ago now, um, that they they plan to eradicate food insecurity on the island by 20, I think it's 2033. So just getting enough information to kind of do that everywhere.
0: Yeah. Do you know what their actual plans are? What the actual process is going to be to eradicate food insecurity in 13 years?
1: yeah i haven't uh i don't know too much about the specifics but i know it's um like a basic universal income uh they're targeting that there's something else about i know they're doing the basic universal income and i think it was increasing increasing wages in general as well i think like increasing the minimum wage obviously which is the basic income but it all boils down to it's, it's money is what it boils down to
0: Right. right i mean few, food insecurity is a result of poverty and yeah. is the root of so many of the problems that we have i'm a big fan of the universal basic income idea and you know what mm. i keep you know, i keep trying to do a podcast on it right so i reach out to psychologists all around canada but it ends up being so many people tackling so many different things that are in such different fields that to right. put it all together would be difficult because Obviously, poverty affects so many people in so many different ways, right? But what's the situation like in New Brunswick then?
1: Not great. (laughs) I'm thinking of, so I I used for my honours data from the 2013-2014 Canadian Community Health Survey from Statistics Canada. And then for my master's, I'll be using the uh, 2015-2016 data files. So there's kind of different estimates there, depending looking at the years. And of course, with the pandemic, it's these statistics aren't as accurate anymore because we expect COVID to have affected food security, food access, all these things. But I'm just thinking there was a recent survey done by the University of New Brunswick. They just did um, the uh, students and they did a community survey. And I think it was something along the lines of like 300 out of 1,200 students were food insecure whether that be moderate or severely try to do the math in my head. That's quite the number. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah. That's a third,
1: qu- fourth, fourth quarter. Yeah.
0: quarter Of all the students, right? Yeah. That's a lot of students.
1: It, it, they do expect it to be higher in students than the general population too. But uh, the, I know that I know the national estimate as of 2018 was 12.7% of Canadians were expected to be some degree of food insecure.
0: And that's before the pandemic. That's Yeah. No, I, I mean, and I keep thinking too. And with everybody that I speak to, who's going through this pandemic, uh, like the rest of us, and they all think that this is an opportunity to really do something big, right? Mm-hmm. All these crises are, are happening as a result of the one major crisis, and now is the time where we can convince governments to take some bold action, like you just said. PEI is, for example, looking at mm-hmm. a UBI and looking at. Uh, ways to end food insecurity and uh, a lot of cities around uh, Canada have taken upon themselves to end homelessness and that's their big uh, plan right which is two shades of the same thing in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. so what is some what are some major bold action that we could do here in Canada federally to make a massive dent in food insecurity going forward when the pandemic is over when things start to return to what we might remember as normal
1: I'm just thinking back, um, the proof research team in Toronto, they had just posted, I think I had just seen it literally yesterday or the day before on their Twitter, something um, kind of related to this. And they had, it was just basically emphasizing the raise the minimum wage, universal basic income. And they they really emphasize adding to your own kind of wealth and not like, it's not about lowering the the prices at the grocery stores. It's about Giving people directly more money because it's not just yes, it is food, but it's not just food. Decreasing the grocery prices will is obviously a good thing, but at the end of the day, if you're food insecure, it's not just about the food; it's about you know the material deprivation as well. So, just adding to someone's um, increasing someone's financial stability is the what it boils down to.
0: And I have I have seen some people contend that doing something like that right increasing people's general purchasing power through mm-hmm. just plain giving them more money would also start to eradicate things like food deserts mm-hmm. where there are no grocery stores in your neighborhood and you have to shop at the corner store and you have to you know spend a lot more money than somebody who lives right next to a giant walmart or superstore mm-hmm. like that right um that if the people in those neighborhoods had more purchasing power, it would incentivize grocery chains to move in there and that food deserts would slowly disappear. You think that makes sense?
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: All right. So you said that you're following this group on Twitter. You're following us on Twitter. You're here because of Twitter. Tell me about your Twitter use. Is it entirely uh, professional? Is it <laughs> for research purposes only?
1: It, uh, it is. I had started my Twitter page a couple years ago now as like a personal thing and I never got into it. Um, I'm not super tech savvy. I'm not super present on social media. Um, and then um, my supervisor, uh, Dr. Speed, he uses it quite a lot. And I was like, I should, I should get on there make some connections. And then like, I kind of did it. Not as I I don't want to say it as a joke, but I was like, I don't expect anything to really, come from it, I'll just probably get some um, some more information on these groups I'm interested in. And then um, I ended up being the six thousand uh, CPA follower. I uh, got a follow back from CPA, It's pretty exciting. Um, I did get a follow back from Proof as well, the research team in Toronto, which was like, I think my heart stopped that day. Um, <laughs> that was cool. Yeah, I, I try to. I try to be on it. I try to tweet my um, when I when I have a conference presentation or when anything super exciting academic related comes up. But I feel like I'm very bad at it. I feel like I need to learn how to be funnier <laughs> in an academic way.
0: I, I think that's a that's an acquired skill. The only people I see who are both academic and funny are well into their sixties. It, it's taken <laughs> a long time to get there. You know, but I I like that you described getting a follow back as an exciting thing it reminds me of the time that terry crews retweeted one of my wife's tweets from her hair salon and she uh ran around telling everyone about it for days afterwards
1: (laughs) i don't blame her that's so exciting
0: it was a very exciting moment you know you get those little moments on twitter i think i i felt the same way when matthew modine once replied to me that was my that's my big accomplishment i think on twitter Uh, and I think, too, that a lot of people do use it for a lot of academic things, right? I'm noticing right now with our convention going on, there's a almost a bigger discussion about certain subjects going on on Twitter than there is in the very rooms uh, where the presentations are taking place. Uh, did you, when you did your presentation, was there a good discussion afterward? Or was it one of those awkward things where everyone sort of waits and then someone ends, ends the meeting?
1: Yeah, it was kind of like... Um uh, the, um, uh, the moderator asked if there were any questions and everyone was kind of quiet for a bit. And then I decided to break the ice. Um, and I asked a question to one of my fellow presenters. Yeah, it was, a, I wouldn't say it was awkward, but it was definitely, it was, it was, it was a quick Q and a, there wasn't a whole lot of, a lot of back and forth and yeah. And then it's like, you go on Twitter and it's all these discussions going on. So it's kind of interesting to see that.
0: Yeah, it is. I, I've been a moderator for, uh, one poster presentation or a session every day through this whole convention. And mm-hmm. I find it amazing is sometimes it's 45 minutes of questions and answers and someone in the audience starts something that sparks someone else. And it just goes and goes until you have to actually cut it off because that's yeah. starting, right. And then other times uh, I do feel as the moderator, I feel extremely awkward uh, with, you know, eight people highlighted on the screen, waiting for questions that aren't coming. And then how long do you wait before you finally go, okay, all right, I guess we have to cut this off. And then I always feel kind of bad about that. So behind the scenes of the CPA convention, although I have never been to one in person, so I don't know how much different it is than presenting a poster and having to stand by it and wait and hope that someone walks by you for you're like three hours there or something, right?
1: Yeah, I haven't done the in-person either. Maybe next year, hopefully, fingers crossed. Yes, it'll be a bit more normal.
0: And that's it. I I have I've been with the CPA a little over a year, and so almost all of it has been from home. How right. is it for you? Have you done most of your school from home over the last year, or all of your school from home?
1: Um, I'm I'm pretty fortunate. So I finished. Um, so my third, the end of my third year is uh, when the pandemic kind of began. So the rest of that semester was online. And then uh, in the fall, starting my fourth year, I only had one class that was online. Everything else was in person. I was very, very fortunate with that. Just where I was in the, I'm, I'm in New Brunswick, which is already doing well with the with the pandemic. And then on top of that, I was in a um, all my upper year courses. So the smaller class sizes were allowed to come back in person um, with social distancing, of course, and masks and everything. So I, I had almost all my classes in the fall and actually in the winter too in person. So um, yeah. Okay. I, yeah. I was, I, I was very, very fortunate with that. Um, I was very happy about it too. It was definitely strange still coming back and, you know, you're kind of in this big lecture hall, but there's only 10 people and you're all as far apart as you can be. Um,
0: right. Wearing a mask through the whole lecture.
1: Yeah. And yelling down to the front of the room so that the professor can hear you. A little bit of fear too. I don't want to say fear, but nervousness about the whole thing. Cause you are in public and you're sitting there for so long and it's like, It's just strange being out in in public again for that duration. I'm so used to running in and out of places now.
0: I was telling someone the other day that I've had to go into the office once since Mm -hmm. the pandemic began. And I've had to go downtown two other times. So three times in about 18 months, I've worn real actual shoes. And that is all. you know the rest of the time i've been wearing shorts and crocs even in the winter i just slip on the crocs to run into the grocery store and run out and that's it that's all i'm doing
1: yeah it must be quite different and i i feel like i'm describing this to you as someone in ontario and you must think it's like an alien world because i know it's quite different there
0: it it is quite different here but uh my dad and his girlfriend live in nova scotia they i think are in a similar situation to new brunswick certainly weather-wise and I guess right now you guys are having a big fight at the border, Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, over COVID. But <laughs>
1: I did hear about that. I think they resolved it by the looks of it. Um, I think I think we're allowed back. I okay. don't know what's going on.
0: Was it you guys who were not allowed in, or is that how it was working?
1: Yeah, I think I think it's because we opened up to other provinces, so we got the we got the boot from the bubble. But I think we're reinstated. It's all on Twitter, but as I mentioned, I'm not great at Twitter yet, so I'm not super up to date on everything, but I think we're back in.
0: Yes, I spent enough time on Twitter that I remember hearing something about New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, and I honestly (laughs) couldn't tell you much more about it than that myself. So, good. Um, So, take me back then, uh, before university. What what is the path that got you to psychology, got you to the University of New Brunswick? And what made you think, yes, psychology, that's where I want to go?
1: So in high school, I really wanted to go to med school. That was like, um, that was my dream. And then um, I did the open house at UMB and they they strongly suggest doing the uh, Bachelor of Science in biology psychology. It's not a double major, but it's just like you take so many biology courses, so many psychology courses. And I really recommend that for, for med school. It makes you a very well-rounded candidate. So I, I started at UNB in this program expecting to, I've never taken a psychology course before, nothing like that offered at my high school. I was just doing it for med school. And it, within the first, I think, month of university, I was like, wow, I should not go to med school. I am not good under pressure. I'm very uh, squeamish when it comes to any kind of like blood or anything like that no, this really probably isn't for me. And then I actually, um, it's, it's funny. My current supervisor was my, uh, intro psych professor. And it was just, I remember the class being so interesting and all my other very sciencey hard, uh, like chemistry classes, things like that. were just like, I don't say they were bad. Like I, I did them and I did well in them, but I just wasn't loving them. And then it was like, I had psychology and I was like, I love this class. It's great every week. I can't wait to take more, more of this. And then I just, um, I, I, I finished the degree. I did the biology psychology program, but like the further I went into it, the more and the more psychology courses I took, the more I just loved it and was so interested in everything. And I was like, I can't believe I never considered this before.
0: I, I discovered I was squeamish like earlier today. I was watching an episode <laughs> of MasterChef, and there was a guy cutting up a monkfish and I had to fast forward mm. because it was just too gross for me. So I also would have been bad at med school. I think.
1: Yeah, not not for me.
0: No. <laughs> so, are you from New Brunswick originally?
1: I am. I am. I'm from uh, I'm from Saint John. Yeah, and I, the, uh, the big reason why I, why I stayed at UMB St. John's rather than going away for university was the was the, there's a Dalhousie um, medicine campus here um, they have a NB branch that's literally attached to the university so I was like oh I'll just go to university here and go right to med school and it'll be great and then I ended up of course not wanting to do med school but then um, found this love for psychology and the psych department at UNBSJ is so so great and I'm I'm just so glad that I accidentally stumbled upon it
0: yeah. Oh, that's great. And so where do you go from here? What is the ultimate goal?
1: Um, I'm going to be applying to uh, clinical psychology PhD programs. Um, I'll probably apply to a few just um, where the, the odds of getting in are kind of low. Uh, they're quite competitive programs. Um, yeah, I'd like, to, I'd like to get into a clinical program. I think that'd be really interesting.
0: I wish you the best of luck with that. And uh, thank Thank you you. for presenting at our, uh, we will also uh, keep track of your work with food insecurity. And I want to, uh, you know, thank you for taking that on. I really think it's an important thing and it's a very important part of the overall problem that we have in Canada with poverty. So Mm -hmm. here's hoping we will solve it one day. You will solve it. And I will say it started here. I will tell everyone it was because of this.
1: Thank you. And thank you for this opportunity. This was awesome.
0: And thank you to Alison Lamont for being a great sport and accepting that being the CPA's 6,000th Twitter follower is an acceptable reason to do a podcast episode. I thought in this postscript I'd go a little more in-depth into PEI's plans to tackle food insecurity because it really is a remarkably ambitious program with specific targets unlike anything else I've seen in Canada and because I've had a chance to research it since speaking with Allison. The last report on food insecurity in PEI found that 14% of islanders experienced a degree of food insecurity in 2018. Now of course it's presumed that since the pandemic hit that number must have increased. So the government decided to take it on with the Poverty Elimination Strategy Act. Not only does PEI intend to eliminate food insecurity by 2030, it also aims to significantly reduce the rates of poverty and end chronic homelessness by 2025. It also makes explicit that poverty is a primary social determinant of health. They began some of this work in 2018 by increasing social assistance and raising the minimum wage, which currently sits at $13 an hour, the highest of the Atlantic provinces. Now, As they continue to move their ambitious targets forward, it's likely that PEI is going to need federal help, particularly with things like Canada child benefits and employment insurance, given especially the abundance of seasonal work on the island. I don't want to take up half this podcast episode with an explanation of PEI's poverty reduction targets, so I'm putting a link to the Poverty Elimination Strategy Act in the show notes. Also in the show notes is a link to the Proof Food Insecurity Poverty Research website that Allison mentioned, which has a more in-depth explanation of PEI's poverty reduction plan. Thank you for listening to Mindful. This podcast is written, produced, edited, and hosted by me, Eric Bowman. Our theme music is Avenues by David Taylor.